Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, asking for your help during this Lenten and Easter season. Support from our listeners is vital and allows us to bring you and many others high-quality spiritual programs like the one you are listening to now. It also assists us in our outreach to areas around the globe, touching literally millions of souls via the World Wide Web. Our highly rated free Discerning Hearts app allows you to access over a thousand audio files as well as video content now available on our expanding YouTube channel. We've been able to offer online spiritual seminar retreats with Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, and Deacon James Keating. The heart of our mission is to help foster authentic spiritual formation for the seeking soul so they can fully encounter the living Christ and share in his mission of healing hearts and spreading the good news to the world. Please, won't you help us to continue this important work of evangelization by donating today to DiscerningHearts.com. The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We continue to discuss the Spirit of Liturgy by Carl and Joseph Wesker, later Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, we're, on the, we're going to come into the third part of this book, the first part was on the essence of the liturgy. The second was on space and time, where the liturgy fits in the world, space and time. The third part is on art in the liturgy, and it's two chapters, one on images and one on music. So we'll start and probably, uh, probably cover the whole session today, the one on, on images, because uh, in his typical clarity as, as a professor, uh, he shows how images, there were images in the Old Testament, and then there, they became uh, more prominent in the New Testament. And he talks about the images in the East, especially the icons. And in the West, he takes us through the whole history of art in the West you know, in a summary fashion, from Romanesque to Gothic to Renaissance to Baroque to Enlightenment to contemporary Non-art, I guess he would call it. So it's quite a tour de force he makes here. So let's let's begin. Uh, basically, he talks about the prohibition of images in the Old Testament. That was a prohibition against images uh, where we try and represent God, like Aaron did in the Exodus with the golden calf. And uh, that's prohibited, of course. But in, in the very Holy of Holies, there were the two cherubim on top of the mercy seat. So that was an image. And then, as he says uh, on page 117 at the top, 131 in your books there, I guess, ancient synagogues were richly decorated with representations of scenes from the Bible. So this idea that the Old Testament uh, for battle images is not correct. Uh, it's true that uh, Islam forbids all images, 
and only has uh, like decorative art, but not so with the, the Jews. Yeah, I think the, he says on, on the previous page, Father, that the Jews, Judaism has sort of developed this iconoclastic approach in the third or fourth century, so not in the Old Testament. Um, so the prohibition of images in Islam and in Judaism since about the third or fourth century has been interpreted in a radical way. Um, but he, as you say, he makes it clear that prior to that, that the Jews did allow images. Yes. And then uh, on page 117, about a third of the way from the bottom, uh, the point of images in the synagogue is not to tell a story about something in the past, but to incorporate the events of history into the sacrament. So that it, it's not just a memorial it's not just a representation of something which took place, but a way of bringing history into the present. Uh, let's see here. On 118 at the top, interesting statement he makes here, two lines down. All sacred images are without exception, in a certain sense, images of the resurrection. History read in the light of the resurrection. So he, I mean, it's not that an image of, uh, I don't know, of the Exodus or an image of Abraham bringing Isaac to sacrifice uh, is not something that has to do with the past, but rather we see all these things in the light of fulfillment in the resurrection. Father, if I can just go back just to the bottom of the previous page, because this struck me, I mean, it's basically, it's reiterated in the way you, where he expresses it and what you've just read, but the beginning of that paragraph at the bottom of the previous page, this, sorry, the centering of all history in Christ is both a liturgical transmission of that history and the expression of a new experience of time in which past, present and future make contact because they have been inserted into the presence of the risen Lord. As a sentence, I think that's, that's astonishing. Uh, reminds me of, of, you know, of Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, of course, which uh, talks about the centrality of Christ in human history but what i really gets me here and i think if we grasp this we wouldn't have as much angst and anxiety amongst uh christians that, that to, to see that the whole of history is present in christ in, in god that the past the present the future so that we're sort of not you know part of this ascent or descent at this timeline but somehow or other we're all mystically present uh to, to christ in every moment of history um and that, I think, liberates us from sort of being claustrophobically trapped in the zeitgeist. That's true. It's very Pauline also. You know, many places he says, about, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. He means that very concretely and very directly, that, that we're already living the resurrected life. It hasn't been manifested yet, but it's present because we're present in Christ who's risen. Yes. So onward, let's see here. Uh, I have nothing on page 135. Nor me. Oh, I, I, would, I was so touched by the bottom of 132 where uh, Rotzinger mentions that the image of the lost sheep um, represents humanity as a whole mankind as a whole is that sheep uh it sums up the whole of salvation history god's entry into history 
the incarnation, the pursuit of the lost sheep and the homeward path into the church. I'd always seen it more on an individual level, you know, like I'm that lost little sheep that he picks up. And of course I am, and he does, (laughs) but to see it as an image of the whole of salvation history, that was a first for me. It's a very patristic thought that the 99 that are left are the, the angels in heaven and that the son of God becomes man to become the pastor, to take us to all humanity as the one lost sheep. And this is something that Lubach brings out in his, his first major book, Catholicism. The subtitle is The Social Aspects of Dogma. This is done in 1931, I think. And already then, uh, Lubach was saying, look, Catholicism is not a me and Jesus religion. It is that, but it's that we are part of a community. We're part of the church. It's a we, uh, not just an I. And the Lubach refers back to that common persisting image of all humanity being the lost sheep. So you've done the same thing that I've done, Vivian, as I, you know, I see these things when they're new for me, I then realize that they're centuries old. It's just that it's taken me some time to get to them. But Chesterton, I think it's, you know, in orthodoxy says that I'm the man who, who uh, was it fearlessly discovered, would have been discovered before or worse to that effect. Yes. Um, 120, 135 or 121, middle of the page there, is now he's talking about Greek images, I mean, the Greek church, Eastern church. The icon is supposed to originate from an opening up of the inner senses, from a facilitation of sight that gets beyond the surface of the empirical and perceives Christ, as the later theology of icons puts it, in the light of Tabor. Sort of paradoxical because icons are flat. They, they don't have the perspective that you have in later Western art. But he's saying here that they're trying to get us beyond the surface. I think part of the, re- part of the meaning there is that when you see an icon, you know it's not real in the sense of a photograph or a perspectival piece of art. Uh, there's something about it which is uh, more than real, so to speak. It, it takes you through it uh, to the transcendent. The rules of, yeah, I, uh, the rules of I'm sorry, yeah. Joseph. No, please. The rules of perspective are actually being deliberately violated in an icon in order for you to get out of the confinement of this world and beyond to what's, what is beyond it. And some people, when they teach art history, they make it sound as though these people didn't know how, they didn't know perspective. And you're like, really? Yes. How did they build the uh, Parthenon? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it, that that's not it at all. It's a deliberate. Um, you're looking beyond. Yeah. By the way, again, in, 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 on the Parthenon, they interrupt you, sorry, Joseph, but uh, yeah. the Parthenon, which looks perfectly rectangular to us and straight, is actually not. That they they the Greeks were so. Uh, expert at this, that they they made the sides just curved enough that your eye perceived it as straight. If if they made it straight, the eye would have perceived it as a bit curved. So you, you're right that the Greeks. It wasn't like the oh. Greeks, uh, you know, didn't understand perspective and and that sort of thing. Go ahead, Joseph. 
Yeah, no, I just, uh, just uh, what you've just said about icons a bit further up again, what you quoted there, I think he summarizes with epigrammatic brilliance and succinctness at the bottom there. The icon comes from prayer and leads to prayer. Mm-hmm. Which is why um, icon painting is actually called icon praying. You pray an icon, you don't paint right. it. Right. Yes, indeed. And I would say that Ratzinger's writings come from prayer and lead to prayer as well. Yes. Page 136 or 122, five lines down. If an interior opening up does not occur in man that enables him to see more than what can be measured and weighed, Mm -hmm. to perceive the reflection of divine glory in creation, then God remains excluded from our field of vision. That's an interesting thing that a, a kind of art which is meant to take you beyond itself. And then a few lines down, thus in the icon, we find the same spiritual orientations that we discovered previously when emphasizing the eastward direction of liturgy. The icon is intended to draw us onto an inner path, the eastward path, toward the Christ who is to return. Again, this Ratzinger puts all things together. He sees these things as a, as a unity. Uh, and here, my, that's an idea which I never thought of before, uh, the icon paralleling the facing of the east. Both of them intend to take us outside of ourselves towards something beyond us. And at the bottom of that page, Father, I, I like the fact that you talk about the uh, Second Council of Nicaea but, uh, and, and all the following councils uh, regard icons as a confession of faith in the Incarnation and iconoclasm as a denial of the incarnation, as the summation of all heresies. So, again, I mean, I sort of hear there's sort of a connection, sort of philosophically understanding art between our own poiesis, right, our own creativity uh, being we are sub-creators and and therefore we're sort of bringing things into being. And so God and the incarnation in one sense begins with the creation of the cosmos, Obviously, in fullness, it's the, when God becomes man. So the whole idea of God as artist as being somehow a manifestation of the incarnational dimension of creativity and how, and how therefore, an attack on icons, iconoclasm, is somehow an attack upon the incarnation itself. That's right. And uh, the, the emphasis on avoiding images, which existed in Judaism and in Islam was precisely based on the desire to let God remain God and and not humanize God uh, into our own image, but realize that God is a totally other, um, infinitely beyond us. And all that is true. But as you say, when God then takes on a face, shows his face to us by becoming incarnate, then that becomes the basis, the foundation for Christian art. Uh, but why do we have an iconoclasm in the seventh century, eighth century? Again, because they they were concerned about maintaining the 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 otherness, the the transcendence of God, uh, which is a legitimate concern. But it's it's not. We can't use it to deny the incarnation and. Christ, therefore, is the, the basis for our being able to have religious art. Father, on the top of 138, 
uh, he talks about this and he says something pretty uh, serious because he's saying iconoclasm rests ultimately on a one-sided apathetic theology which recognizes only the holy otherness, what you just said. A theology in the final analysis regards revelation as the inadequate human reflection of what is eternally imperceptible. But if this is the case, faith collapses. That is a very strong statement he is making there. Can you address that? <laughs> we'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Uh, well, first let me uh, say something about the word apophatic. Yes, please do. Because there's a... Phatic uh, comes from the Greek word which means to speak, and apo means away. And so theology begins with cataphatic, according to speech. That is to say, because God is expressed in his creation, as any artist is expressed in the, in the piece of art, we can know something about God analogically from what we see in creation. So that's that's positive or 
cataphatic theology. Uh, for example, we can say when we see justice and we say God is just, we know something about God, but what we know about justice uh, or fatherhood. But the, the apophatic way is it to say, well, yes, we know something about God from creation, but what he is is, is beyond that, infinitely beyond that. And so we have to unsay it, so to speak. We got to sp speak against it or speak away from it, apophatical negative theology. So you've got both the positive, you know, uh, God is a father, but the negative well, is not the same way we're fathers, though. And then comes the way of eminent, eminencia of eminence. That is, God somehow is a synthesis, which beyond our ability to grasp in, in his mystery of both the, the cataphatic and apophatic. So just to clarify that term, but although nowadays with internet, you can always find out what things mean uh, if you're careful and know what is uh, honest philology, what is not. So your question was... This statement uh, of his, if this is the case, meaning this one-sided apophatic theology, recognizing only the otherness, he says, if this is the case, faith collapses. Yes, faith in the sense of faith in the incarnation, faith in the God who has spoken to us, yeah. I mean, you, you can have knowledge of God's existence through reason alone, and that Knowledge also that he must be far beyond anything that we can conceive in a limited way. But so that's not faith. That's knowledge. What we have faith in is, is God has revealed himself. And if you deny uh, that any, any created limited reality can reflect God, then you deny the incarnation. So faith collapses. That's how it is. I would yeah. interpret yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, that's how I understood it. You know, if, 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 we, if we're insisting only on the, the uh, otherness of God, who's so far away from our comprehension, we cannot say much about him at all, then you're denying the fact that God can and does reveal himself to us and therefore allows us to understand something beyond the mere otherness, right? The, the, the fact that he is what he shows us to be, uh, that shows us he is. Uh, if I could just go back to what a page 137 towards the bottom there, because I love this as well. It's a lot of great mystical penetrating stuff here. So this is personally writes about iconography as Ev Dokimov again says so strikingly, the light of the first day and the light of the eighth day meet in the icon. Present already in creation is the light that will shine with its full brightness on the eighth day in the resurrection of the Lord. Now, the, the connection between you know, the first day of creation, you know, the, the existence of light, which, of course, and that, that's what enables us to do anything else, right? Um, you know, we, we don't see color without light. How can you have an icon without light? So, you know, the first day, the, the incarnation of creation itself, if you like, uh, um, is present on the eighth day in eternity with the resurrection of the Lord. The two somehow, the incarnate and the eternal, are somehow united uh, in the icon, which I think is marvelous. Yes. So he turns in on page 130 at the bottom from the east to the west. He begins with Romanesque. Uh, on page 139 slash 125, with the middle there, he says the Romanesque style, plastic art emerges, something that never had a foothold in the east. So that's a, that's a development that we see in the west. And below that, a couple lines. Art is always characterized by the unity of creation. And this goes back to what you just quoted from the previous couple of pages, Joseph. 
uh, crystal, uh, excuse me, art is always characterized by the of creation, Christology, and eschatology. The first day, creation, is on its way towards the eighth, eschatology, which in turn takes up the first through Christology. So, again, he's, he's bringing, bringing together creation and the resurrected form of, of our lives. Then he goes into Gothic at the bottom of the page, page 140, the top. Note that the central image becomes different. The central image of the church is from east to the west. The depiction is no longer the, of the Panto Crator, and Panto means from Pan meaning all and Crator meaning creator. Uh, in, in these beautiful basilicas, especially like in Ravenna and in, in Venice, uh, that have this Eastern iconography, you have in the apse often you have the, this beautiful mosaic of God the Creator, the Ponto Crator. He says, The depiction is no longer the Ponto Crator, the Lord of all, leading us into the eighth day. It has been superseded by the image of the crucified Lord in the agony of his passion and death. And this is something which develops in, you know, Western art and Western theology, so that the Eastern Fathers tend to be more uh, anagogical or mystical, uh, whereas the Western Fathers, especially with Augustine and onward, tend to be more historical. So it's in the East, I mean, this is simplifying, of course. In the East, it's theosis. It's we, God became man, we, we might become God. In the West, it's redemption. God became man to save us from our sins. It's both, of course, but... We see here kind of different emphases in the two lungs of the church, as John Paul II would say. Mm -hmm. And just below that, Father, this is an interesting phrase, which I think I understand. But if you want to clarify, please feel free. Okay. The mysterial image has been replaced by the devotional image. Yes. I think that's another way of expressing what I just said. I think you probably, yeah. And he goes just below that, Evdokimov comes up again thinks that the turn from Platonism to Aristotelianism during the 13th century played a part. Platonism sees sensible things as shadows of the eternal archetypes. So that's what an icon does. In the sensible, we can and should know the archetype and rise up through the former to the latter. Aristotelianism rejects the doctrine of ideas as something separated from things themselves. The thing composed of matter and form exists in its own right, and so... Uh, there's a there's a tendency for the West to become more historically incarnated uh, as opposed to the East, or not as opposed to, I suppose, but uh, as a counterbalance to the East being more ahistorical and eschatological. Uh, on page 141, he carries that theme on eight lines down or so. Salvation history is seen less as a sacrament and there's a narrative unfolded in time. And below that, the bottom of that paragraph, a devotion to the cross of a more historical kind replaces the orientation of the Oriens to the risen Lord, who's going to have Oriens means rising, the risen one, the one who's rising. So he mentions, kind of some, he, he mentions well, on the bottom of that page, he mentions the um, plague victims cared for in this place where there's this altarpiece I had read somewhere that the plague played quite a role in the devotion to the suffering Christ, because that that's when the crucifix uh, really spread 
in the church because the people were suffering so greatly that they found comfort in turning toward that image of, of Jesus and sharing that he shared our suffering and that we can unite our suffering to him. Where's the reference of the plague? It's on the bottom of 141, but he mentions it only in this kind of specific place. Um, okay. Oh, I see. And I, whereas I, see. I, when I, wherever I read this, I'm sorry, I don't remember. It was referring to this as a more widespread phenomenon that the spread of the crucifix in medieval Europe had a lot to do with the Black Plague. Well, that, that makes, sense. makes sense. Uh, he goes on to the Renaissance on page 143, and uh, in the, towards the bottom of that paragraph, he says, true, Christian subjects are still being depicted, but such religious art, in quotes, is no longer sacred art in the proper sense. Yeah. It does not enter into the humility of the sacraments and their time-transcending dynamism. I, I, I've seen some pictorial representations of this with Caravaggio. I think it's Caravaggio. Uh, uh, my art history is very poor, but but showing how these Mary in the Renaissance became more like a a, a model. No, you're not for, thinking you know, of Caravaggio. Caravaggio is the guy who did all that very dramatic encounters right. with Christ. Um, that's right. Like like the call of Matthew. A lot that's of right. dark thinking, and light and all that. You're thinking of um, like say um, Raphael. Uh, whose whose model for the Blessed Mother was his mistress, and this kind of thing. I mean, um, they they sort of conflated the ideal of beauty with the Blessed Mother in these depictions, and um, but more more human centered and more human centered, which was the movement in the in the Renaissance anyway. Was um, uh, let's face it, there was a lot now, of wealth, should, new, new wealth and affluence. And, That's the problem. What's that, Joseph? Humanism becomes anthropocentrism. That's the problem. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's in response to there's all this wealth in Italy through commerce and the, I mean, you know, let the good times roll, right? I mean, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I would say one thing. This whole paragraph is marvelous. And as I was yes. reading this, when it gets to the, when it gets to the history of art, part the latter part of this this chapter, I really want to write something. Um, you know, for the imaginative conservative, or something basically just quoting Ratzinger as an art historian. Yes, uh, because there's so much there's so much percep perception in this. You know, perspicacity. Yes, there is. The uh, well, I like. What, oh, go well, ahead. Well, just the the uh, nostalgia for the gods and the. Uh, uh, reemergence of, of pagan mythology. So now a lot of art is using themes from pagan mythology. Also, you know, he mentioned earlier about plastic art, meaning sculpture, not having really taken off in the East the way it did in the West. And of course, the Renaissance comes and now sculpture just explodes with Michelangelo and, and, uh, um, oh, Bernini and, yeah, you know, and 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 uh, they're taking the skill with marble to a whole new level, you know. But again, as Joseph said, but what are the subjects for the most part? You know, um, they're from pagan antiquity, and this this uh, cult of the body, the cult of the human body. Uh, 
I think I think it was John Ruskin, the 19th century art historian, who spoke of Venice as metamorphosing from a medieval Venus to a Renaissance—sorry, uh, a medieval virgin to a Renaissance Venus. Well, the so, Republic, of, the it, Republic of Venice yeah. became incredibly wealthy. I mean, all that commerce that went through Venice, all that Adriatic Sea and Mediterranean Sea commerce that went through there, they had dominions all around the Adriatic Sea. I mean, they became a powerhouse, an economic powerhouse. So with all that money, you know. I, and I think I think the artist, has, is Chumabui sound right? I think there's, he has. Uh, he's older. Say- he's, 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 uh, Chumabui is sort of a figure leading from Eastern iconographic Christ to the Western. He's a, he's a, uh, what do you call that? Intersection Crossover. figure yeah. in heart, art, in art. Transitional. Transitional. Yeah. There you go. I was looking for that word. <laughs> Trans. Sorry, transitional. <laughs> so <laughs> the next, these next two pages are very important, 144 and 145, because he's talking about moving into the present. Yes. I, I think we need to comment on this, but the uh, top of 144, uh, he's talking about the Baroque here, which I never really liked that much, but it's beautiful in Germany. I'm telling you the in Regensburg, where I knew Ratzinger, uh, the cathedral there, you walk into, I mean, I still remember going down the street and seeing the Protestant church closed. Of course, you looked in the window, it was a plain window, and you saw nothing but the, but pews and a table up there and no, no art at all. You go down the street to the cathedral, you walk in, oh my gosh, it's gold and purple and angels and blue sky up there and pillars that are that are marble i mean it was just the, the riches was overwhelming but sometimes too much but anyway he says the curtain of temporality is raised and we are allowed a glimpse into the inner life of the world of god this art is intended to insert us into the liturgy of heaven again and again we experience a baroque church as a unique kind of i love this Fortissimo of joy, an hallelujah in visible form. Right. Okay, then comes the Enlightenment. Contemporary culture turned away from the faith and trod another path. So the faith took flight in historicism, the copying of the past, or else attempted to compromise or lost itself in resignation and cultural abstinence. The last of these led to a new iconoclasm, which has frequently been regarded as virtually mandated by the Second Vatican Council. The destruction of images the first signs of which reached back to the 1920s, eliminated a lot of kitsch and unworthy art, but ultimately it left behind a void, the wretchedness of which we are now experiencing in a truly true way. So this is Ratzinger's beautiful sensitivity. He's saying, look, we're, we're experiencing a, a void, a, lot, a lack of beautiful art. And then he asked the question, where do we go from here? Take note of that, Thomas, and Ratzinger asked the question there. <laughs> Today, we are experiencing not just a crisis of sacred art, but a crisis of art in general of unprecedented proportions. The crisis of art for its part is a symptom of the crisis of man's very existence. The immense growth in man's mastery of the material world has left him blind to the questions of life's meaning that transcend the material world. We might almost call it a blindness of the spirit. And then on the next page, uh, eight lines down or so, Thus, our world of images, that's a contemporary world, no longer surpasses the bounds of sense and appearance. 
And the flood of images that surrounds us really means the end of the image. The flood of images that surround us really means the end of the image. I think about that with taking pictures, you know, with your with your phone all the time. It, the value of the picture has been devalued because now you, you can make that. Used to be only cost money to, do, to develop film. You're kind of parsimonious, you know. Now, the flood of pictures. If something cannot be photographed, it cannot be seen. In this situation, the art of the icon, sacred art, depending as it does on a wider kind of scene, becomes impossible. Now, and I must say, I really, I this resonates with me because I've, I've thought about it for a long time. I, I think a lot of people disagree, but he says, what is more, art itself, which in Impressionism and Expressionism explored the extreme possibilities of the sense of sight, becomes literally objectless. Art turns into experimenting with self-created worlds, empty, quote, creativity, which no longer perceives the creator spiritus, the spirit creator. It attempts to take his place, and in doing so, it manages to produce only what is arbitrary and vacuous, bringing home to man the absurdity of his role as creator. I mean, I'm sure there'd be a lot of objection to this by a lot of people, but boy, I, I'm telling you. Oh, I highlighted that whole passage, and uh, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I would even say, he says, if something cannot be photographed, it can't be seen. I would even say, while something is being photographed, it's not being seen. Yes. You know? Uh, I know. So the experience of the thing is lost to the person behind the camera. And which is not to say there's no place for photography. But if you spend all your time behind that camera, you're going to be cut off from what is happening. And you know something's even worse than that? What? If, if you do it to take a selfie. Yeah. So you're not only, you're, more, the important thing is that you're in there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess we can sum up as he did. He does it by the, he numbers them. Let's just go through the numbers briefly. Number one, the complete absence of images is compatible with faith in the incarnation of God. We discussed that. That's a good summary. Next page, number two. Sacred art finds its subjects in the images of salvation history, beginning with creation, continuing all the way from the first day to the eighth day, the day of the resurrection and second coming, in which time, in which the line of human history will come into full circle. So that's the first day, eighth day. Number three. The images of the history of God in relation to man are, do not merely illustrate the succession of past events, but display the inner unity of God's action. Again, that bringing back together of past, present, and future. Uh, and then, interesting, it, under the number three on the next page, he says, an image of the crucifixion no longer transparent to Easter would be just as deficient as an Easter image forgetful of the wounds and the suffering of the present moment. That's a very interesting comment on what crucifixes look like, you know? Uh, and it, it's sort of a criticism of this Hyperrealism is somewhat, you know, the I would say the late medieval Spanish uh, crucifixes, which would kind of try and outdo each other in goriness. Number four, the image of Christ and the images of the saints are not photographs. Their whole point is to lead us beyond what can be apprehended at the merely material level to awaken new senses in us and to teach us a new kind of seeing which perceives the invisible in the visible. You know, I think this is something Rasher and Paul Benning did in their in his teaching. That is, he always tried to bring us beyond 
you know, a current event or a particular thing to see to see God, to see to see heaven, to see the realities which are transcendent. Um, number five, the church in the West does not need to disown the specific path that she has followed since about the 13th century, but she must achieve a real reception of the seventh ecumenical council of Nicaea, which affirmed the fundamental importance and theological status of the image in the church. Okay. Uh, I got two final things here, middle of that page. But still there's a difference between sacred art, which is related to liturgy and belongs to the ecclesial sphere, and religious art in general. There cannot be completely free expression in sacred art. Forms of art that deny the logos of things, reason, nature of things, and imprisoned man within what appears to be the senses are incompatible with the church's understanding of the image. No sacred art can come from an isolated subjectivity. Wow. And finally, the last page of the chapter, that paragraph there, what, what does all this mean? Practically, question mark, answer, art cannot be produced. Last part of the paragraph, before all things, it requires the gift of a new kind of seeing. And so it would be worth our while to regain a faith that sees. Wherever that exists, art finds its proper expression. Mm -hmm. You know, whether one likes it or not, I think that the art of Michael O'Brien has an iconic character to oh, it. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That uh, he's clearly made yeah. Oh, definitely. He studied icon iconography. And that, I mean, it gives his art a real supernatural beauty, I think. Yeah. Any final comments on this? We don't do chapter on images. No, I think that basically, I'm glad you, I'm glad you quoted from the final paragraph, which I had highlighted, um, which basically yeah, brings it all together. All right. Well, next session we'll take a chapter two of this section of the book on music and liturgy again, which is a uh, an area where Master Benedict had a great great love and a great knowledge too. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Thank you. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.